welcome once again to a special Noble Hearts Forum edition of Center Left Radio, the progressive voice of hope, politics, and jazz. Uh, this is the first of our Noble Hearts Forums, fora, if you will, of 2024. We've done we've done a number of these in past years, and we've done uh, most of them with faces uh, that will be familiar, well, voices at least, this is an audio podcast, uh, with voices that will be familiar to you. Today's uh, podcast, today's forum, uh, really got its legs, got its inspiration, uh, so this is probably a hard way of putting it, inspiration. I don't, I don't normally think of inspiration as being uh, something coming from a rather negative sort of thing, but with the events uh, of, of uh, October 7th, and, uh, and no small amount of prodding from one of our panelists, Charles Webble, who is well known to everybody, uh, we decided that it was important that we, as a group, uh, the Noble Hearts Forum crowd here, do what we could. I'm not sure that it'll be a question of tackling effectively the entire issue of Israeli-Palestinian war, uh, conflict, uh, decades, if not millennia, of problems but certainly dealing with the current situation because it is a front of mind, front of media, front of everything situation. Uh, with us today, uh, we have, as I say, we have panelists that'll be known to all of you, four specifically panelists today. Uh, Bill Mulligan, Professor Emeritus at Murray State University, taught US and world history courses, and, and uh, he is the author of several books and dozens of scholarly articles and presentations. He was a Fulbright Scholar in Ireland and received a Hibernian Research Award from the Kushwa Center at the University of Notre Dame to support his research on the Irish diaspora. Uh, Charles Webble, uh, sitting about 7,000 miles and eight time zones ahead of us, uh, is currently professor and guarantor of the School of International Affairs at the State University of New York in Prague, that Prague, yes. Five-time Fulbright scholar, has published 13 books, many of which deal with issues of war and peace. He is now working on volume two of his three-book trilogy, modestly entitled the fate of this world and the future of humanity, as well as on a novel, for some reason novel, he, he, he wrote this with, with, in quotes, academia, academia with three Ks, most people spell it with only two, and that's as much as I've ever known about this book, Charles, I hope one of these days you, or even before it gets out, I hope you give me a little more information on it, I don't know about in today's show, but I'm sure we'll be hearing about that before it comes out, and God knows once it does. Uh, John Cugini, received uh, his uh, bachelor's degree from Columbia in philosophy. I, I don't know, he, he might have been the only guy in our class to, no, probably not, I don't know, I'm trying to think. Well, in any event, John got his philosophy degree from Columbia, then went on working with the U.S. Army as a computer programmer instructor for about uh, seven or eight years. During that same period, earned an MS in computer science at the University of Iowa, and then went on to a, let's see now, about a 29-year career with the National Bureau of Standards uh, in as a computer scientist with specialties in the area of 
programming languages, graphics and visualization, and what else would follow, logically, of course, voting systems, but that's, that's John. And I would add, John is also uh, a proud, lifelong Republican. I say this to differentiate that from him not being a recently minted MAGA Trumpian. If you don't already know the difference between the two, I expect you'll learn a bit more about that in the course of today's forum. Tom Gallagher has always, always been involved in anti-war movements. Uh, without going through all the interstitial and intermediary stuff that he's done in his life, let's just say he served as an observer to elections in Ukraine, Russia, and Belarus. That should give you some notion of where Tom is coming from. Uh, what we're talking about, what we've advertised this to be is, uh, the title of this is Israeli and Gaza building the road to a lasting peace. Sounds, sounds rather mundane, I don't know. Uh, when you consider the way this has been going since October 7th, well, okay, just this morning, just this morning, I've received already online at least six communications about the current let's call it the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, technically, this is what it really is. All of the communications expressed in deeply emotional, absolutist terms. One in particular was an opinion piece from a publication called Heretz, written by a guy named Gordon Levy. Now, it was sent to me by another one of our classmates, I won't mention his name, with a comment attached to the effect, I could not read this thing beyond the first Paragraph. That's that's what our classmate said. Let me uh, let me read what that first paragraph said. Well, the, the title of the opinion piece was "If it isn't a genocide in Gaza, then what is it?" Here's how the first paragraph went. Let's assume that Israel's position at The Hague is right and just, and Israel committed no genocide or anything close to it. So, what is this? What do you call the mass killing which continues even as these lines are being written without discrimination, without restraint, on a scale that is difficult to imagine? Our goal today, our goal among a group of four guys who went to high school together at a, at a pretty neat school, five guys if you add me in there, of course, uh, from a place called Regis High School in Manhattan, uh, who, have, who learned to think hopefully were on the path to doing so before they got there, but certainly learned a lot more about thinking and thinking rationally and thinking clearly uh, while they were there. The goal today, the goal of this forum, is to define at least the components of a pathway to a sustainable peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians. We are not going to create a perfect roadmap to peace. And by the same token, we are not here to grandstand anyone's position. Grandstanding these days is what passes for solving problems. You're wrong, you've always been wrong, I say you're wrong, everyone knows you're wrong, and now you have to fix the problem. Vote for me, because only I can solve your problems, or something like that. These sorts of emotion-charged statements have become the accepted lingua franca of American politics. But as our history has shown us time and time again, if we're going to discover solutions that are more permanent than the momentary strengths of any one faction, then we're going to have to reason our way to that solution. 
or at least define reasonable pathways to possible solutions. In the early 20th century in this country, that process became known as progressivism, sort of a, a radical notion, even for a titular liberal democracy. All political stakeholders were supposed to agree to what the problem was, to the forum where it would be hashed out, and to the rules of doing that hashing out, and then have at it with the understanding that no one party would ever get everything it wanted. There'd be compromises. And the compromise solution could be touted as a victory by and for all sides. But to start the process of achieving compromise, and especially in the realm of the chronic Israeli-Palestinian conflict, we have to be able to define what the hell is going on in a reasonably rational way. And that also means rationally reciting the regional history as, as much of it is necessary to define the current situation. Which begs the question, Bill Mulligan, historian, in seeking a solution to the current Gazan-Israeli conflict, can there be a rational and meaningful recitation of the regional history without a game-ending emotional relitigation of that same history? Or, or is there some other starting point for all the parties if we're serious about seeking peace between Israelis and Palestinians? Well, that's a, a heavy question because I, I think part of the problem is that there is no shared understanding of the region's history. The point of the question, if, yeah. If you yeah. read, you know, what the Israelis account and the Palestinian accounts, it's as if you're reading two entirely different stories yeah. about, you know, about two entirely different parts of the world. So coming up with an, an ex a history that's meaningful for both sides is, is, a, is a significant challenge. Um, and it's and it's not any you know and it's not easy. I mean, I do a lot of work on the American Civil War, and there there are still people holding to a very different, very pro-Southern, slavery-free history of the American Civil We're War. We're hearing an awful lot of that um, these days. Yeah. So you know, to expect the Israelis and the Palestinians to come to a shared history may be asking too much. The thing I would think would be more useful was to look at the histories of other societies that have been riven um, by serious conflicts, to look at the history of Northern Ireland, and particularly uh, the peace process that began, um, you know, 20, really 25 years ago. Yeah. Uh, imperfect, but people are not killing one another in the streets anymore. <laughs> uh, I was in South Africa in July, and... Um, you know, South Africa had a reconciliation commission. They didn't deny the, the terrible things that were done. They aired them publicly. Um, you know, changes were made. Um, and now, that, you know, they're trying to rebuild a, a common society. So I, I, I always like to be an optimist, but in this instance, I'm, I'm somewhat pessimistic because I don't think either side is willing to give up anything at this point. Charles, is there really anything cool. that either side could give up? I'm sorry to jump in there, Bill. That, that's, you're depressing the hell out of me, but, yeah. <laughs> but, but you're being honest, and, and, and that's it. Uh, it but, or, well, I'd like to go back to your opening comment. You were referring, actually, to Gideon Levy, 
Yes. And I initially tried to forward that, but you have to be an online subscriber to Haaretz, the Israeli uh, newspaper, ah. in order to get the complete article. That said, he's done a couple of interviews, very skillful interviews recently, uh, including uh, National Public Radio and BBC, and I've watched both of them. Yeah. Uh, to the listeners of this program, I'm presently in Doha, Qatar, and within a few miles of of where I'm uh, residing in a hotel, there are negotiations taking place uh, between Qatari's mediators and um, Israeli and, and uh, Hamas uh, representatives, as well as uh, diplomats from all over the world trying to find not common ground necessarily, but ways that slow incremental steps can be taken so that at least medicine can get into the Gaza Strip and then after that possibly uh, more fuel for the hospitals. In other words, step by step. Now, coming back to your question, Mr. Levy in his interviews, and he's an Israeli political analyst going back five decades, he's a former advisor to the former prime minister of Israel, Shimon Peres from the Labor Party. He said, and he, um, he also is not at the moment terribly optimistic, and this is why he's not terribly optimistic. Remember, he's an Israeli, but he's on the fringe of the Israeli political mainstream. He said the ideal formula for reconciliation in the long run and a truce in the short run between Israel and its Palestinian neighbors is land for peace. This was the formula that was raised again 25 years ago during the Clinton administration at the Oslo Accords and for various reasons was rejected by both sides. He said that is an ideal, however, that shows little promise in the near future of being realized. And that is because what was previously said, the Israelis and the Palestinians are talking past to each other, past each other and seem to have irreconcilable positions. But he said it's because of the facts on the ground. And the facts on the ground are that the ground in the West Bank is occupied by Israel but even more importantly, has hundreds of settlements with hundreds of thousands of Israeli settlers, all of which is in controversial in contravention of virtually every international law that exists. And he said he sees no way to remove these settlers. So the formula land for peace, in other words, the Palestinians agreed to cease hostilities against Israel and thereby to create what's called a negative peace in return for a viable Palestinian state comprising both the West Bank and Gaza. He said the facts on the ground undermine that formula. Okay, let me, let me, let me, let me, let me, ground, let, let me finish my okay, statement. Okay, go ahead, go ahead. Those yeah. facts on the ground have largely been created by Israel since the first Nakba in 1948, most importantly, the almost um, ineradicable fact 
of Israeli settlements. So even if you got Israel and Hamas or Israel and interlocutors five miles from where I'm sitting, negotiating some kind of truce or ceasefire, you will not get a comparable withdrawal of settlers from the occupied West Bank. Okay. Do you believe what you're saying is the intractable situation? Do you see any other mechanism by which there might be a move towards the withdrawal of settlers, assuming, and it seems, I would say reasonably, that without that withdrawal, nothing really can go forward towards anything resembling a long-term peace? Or do you agree that there's no way to go beyond this, that the best we can do Sitting here today, there's, or a anyone else. there's a wonderful German word, yein. Yeah, yes, nine. No. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, because it's happened before. Israel disoccupied Gaza before, and settlers were removed, in some cases forcibly, by the Israeli Defense Force. But that was small potatoes in terms of numbers compared with the situation on the West Bank. So there would have to be a massive effort by a different Israeli government, which most Israelis say is non-functional, to get to the point where the settlers would even begin to discuss moving away from the greater Israel, back to the, the current state of Israel. And I don't know anyone who has a formula for doing that. John, do you? Do you have any? Have you any other ideas about how beyond the, the notion of simply uh, throwing up our hands and saying, "Well, if we can't, if we can't get settlers out, and it doesn't seem like it's going to happen right now, then the best we can do is to try to get some supplies in there and get some uh, some humanitarian aid and some medication, and God knows what would happen after that." Is it? Is that really what this comes down to? I, I don't know. Let me um, let me kind of not answer your question and answer it. I just want to review some not recent history, but you know, in terms of land for peace. I mean, I think okay. that is kind of what everyone's sort of hoping for. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, land for peace has has been done. It was done with the Sinai Peninsula. You know, Israel captured the Sinai Peninsula. They said, "We'll give it back. We want a peace treaty," and that was. Accomplished between Israel and Egypt, and you know, big big potatoes at the time. I might add that uh, Sadat, the good guy here, got assassinated for his trouble by uh, by militants on the Arab side, which might show why there's some reluctance on the part of Arab leaders to conduct a peace with Israel. Yeah. Um, I, I I hate to disagree with Charles on facts because he, he knows an awful lot. My impression, it seems, that the general account I've heard of the the Oslo Accords and the peace treaties. Around 2000, with Clinton and Arafat and all the rest, um, the standard narrative seems to be that Israel was happy. They were well, not happy, but that, that they were willing to go go for it, and that Arafat rejected it, uh, either on principle or because he thought he'd be assassinated. So the Israel's uh, Israel has done land for peace and has been willing to do land for peace. It withdrew from Gaza. I mean, let's let's remember this was an attack from Gaza where there were no Israeli settlements. So, you know, you, that being said, yes, the settlements in the West Bank, that, that is a problem. But in general, Israel, Israel's sort of a normal, prosperous country. They, you know, they have neighbors. They just want to, you know, leave us alone. Whether they could get the settlements out, I mean, I, I think that's an issue with respect to the West Bank. 
But is there a counterparty on the other side, anyone since Sadat, that's willing willing to do that? And um, at least, you know, Clinton was pretty frustrated in 2000 with Arafat. Now, the willingness on, on either side, I mean, I think it does have to be land for peace, but yes, Israel will have to bite the bullet and pull settlers out of West Bank as they pull them out, as they did pull them out of Gaza. I... Yeah, you know, I, I'd be thrilled to see a Palestinian leader say, "Yes, let's let's try to pursue that." But you know, it's been a while. It's never I've never seen a Palestinian leader being willing to do that. Tom, is there so any I, reason? I, Tom Gallagher, is there any reason to believe a Palestinian leader might go in that direction? Is there anything? Is there any incentive? Or, or are we down to the? You know, uh, I, I remember Abi Iban describing Yasser Arafat as a guy who never missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity. He's not the only one who described him that way, by the way. But is there anyone out there on the Palestinian side who is negotiable with, speak to a bill with, are the people that Charles is referring to that are sitting not very far from where he's sitting right now, at least beginning this process, can you imagine anyone in that group, if, if you know more about it, it would be more than I know, most certainly, uh, that might be on the Palestinian side willing to look towards peace, a long-term peace? Um, I guess I actually don't think that's the primary question okay. at the moment okay. uh, for us to be imagining who's out there uh, in Palestine. Uh, the first question, I think, obviously, uh, is to stop. Uh, what is going on uh, in in Gaza at the moment? Um, and the question for us is, what what's our relationship to it as Americans? What can we do? So the first thing we have to do, in my mind, um, is to prevail upon the uh, U.S. Congress, and I'm not optimistic about this in, mm. in the slightest, mm -hmm. uh, to start uh, not providing open-ended uh, military assistance to the Israeli government at this point. Uh, Bernie Sanders has a very modest resolution, which will come up this week because it's privileged, um, asking the State Department to uh, provide, tell us whether they have evidence of violations of human rights on the part of the IDF. Um, and the hope, of course, is we'll get an honest answer, you know, again, not terribly optimistic. And as he points out, um, he is someone who has refused to call for a uh, ceasefire, in which I don't agree with him on this, but uh, um, at the same time, he thinks that there are gross violations to human rights. And it's obvious. 70% of the housing stock is destroyed or damaged. Uh, the amount of water that is available to people on a daily basis is about 10% of what the World Health Organization says is necessary. 50% of Palestinian children are uh, fed on formula. There is not water available for it. I could go on. We all know this. Um, we, there are laws, the Leahy laws, that say we can't provide military assistance to foreign forces that are engaged in gross violations of human rights. Now, Sanders's position is, if you think there are none, you should have no hesitation about being for this. Let, let's hear it. And the White House opposes this. You know, they, they're gobbledygook reasons, not the right moment, not the right resolution. Uh, you know, how could it be more basic than that? So that is the first thing. The second, to me, is the long-run situation. 
Um, there was a, a good piece, I think, by Naomi Klein a while ago. She had written about uh, boycott, divestment, and sanctions 15 years ago. Um, and, you know, said if, if we had done more of this, would something different have happened? And I think all of us in our generation have been hesitant to call Israel an apartheid state, to boycott a government that's, that's built for people who have suffered under boycotts unjustly in the course of their history. We've all been, been reticent and shy about it. And, you know, people now 50 years younger than our, us, they're not. That, you know, this is, this is ancient history and maybe yeah. worth studying all yeah. of these things, but they're real life things. Is there a two-state solution available anymore? Not clear to me. Uh, those 700,000 settlers in the West Bank, uh, you know, I don't know. As you know, said before, the facts on the ground. A one-state solution may be all that is available. Everybody is a citizen in, in all of the areas. Uh, I'm not saying anybody, you know, certainly that the Israeli government's going to go for this. Mm. Um, but, we, you know, as Americans, that putting pressure on that government to come up with some uh, approach, one or two states, is what we can attempt to do. And I have no level of optimism about her ability to have great impact. But then again, no one thought that uh, apartheid would fall in South Africa. And again, I don't mean to say things are exactly the same, but we have a reasonably analogous situation. You, you just hit on something, and, and I, I have to make a comment about this, and this is a personal comment. The first time I heard kids protesting on the Columbia campus, your old campus, John, when I heard kids say, from the river to the ocean, or, or the river to the sea, however it was put, and I didn't understand, at, at first I wasn't sure what that was until I got the translation, my God, wipe out Israel basically is what this came out to. Israel may no longer be a state. And the notion that college kids, we were college kids, and the, the thought of being that openly anti-Israeli, or they don't see it as anti-Israeli, they see it as, as pro-humanitarian, I guess, but it, it, it's shocking. It, it, it really does do something in I your system. Can say something about that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, again... It, it, with the, the tentativeness of one of our generation, I don't go chanting that thing because I know how it's interpreted, right? Yeah. But the, um, you know, the, there's been this thing with the Israeli government over the years that, that you have to recognize Israel's right to exist. Um, do Native Americans have to recognize the United States' right to exist? Um, do Irish citizens have to recognize Northern Ireland's right to exist as part of uh, Great Britain? The issue isn't uh, uh, mind control. You deal with facts on the ground, if you will, in a, you know, sort of a, a different context. Uh, Palestinians don't think that this all should have happened, right? That That is not to say that that means is, uh, Israelis, the, the Jewish population, should be driven out. But you don't have to think it was a good idea. Okay, yeah, but let, you said facts me, on the ground, me, though. Okay, John, please, go ahead. Yeah, let me jump in a little there. And I, I think this is sort of an important point. And I think we have kind of the quest for perfect justice versus, you know, a realistic search for peace. And a lot of Palestinians, I'm 
afraid to say. I mean, their solution is we want to get in a time machine, go back to 1928 and stop Jews from coming in. Mexico would like to have California back. I'm, I'm sure they would. We took it from them. The, the native Hawaiians would love to have Hawaii back. I, Japan would like to have whatever island Stalin took from them at the end of World War II. Yeah. And that's great. I mean, we can sit and legislate and go back 50, 100 years. I don't think that's productive. I mean, if you if you believe in the quest for perfect justice and we won't rest until we've taken the land back, okay. I mean, you you can you can go that way. Uh, you know, Putin wants Ukraine back. Everyone wants something back from X years ago. I think you kind of deal with the status quo. Israel is here, folks, and you don't have to agree that they were. It was right to be there. Maybe it was. Maybe its establishment was a great crime. Who knows? On the other hand, they're not going to pack up and leave. So if if you want peace, deal deal with the status quo, however unjustly it may have been arrived at. And, he, and that, of course, is you know in, in debate itself. But for the sake of argument, let's let's say let's say the Palestinians are right about the establishment of Israel. In a certain way, so what? So what? They're here. They're here. We're not giving California back to Mexico. We're just not. It's not happening. Israel is not going to, you know, all beat their breasts and say, yeah, we are, my grandfather was wrong. I'm, I'm going back to, to Poland or Germany. So let's, let's deal with, as they say, the facts okay. on the ground. And that's, that's hard enough. But, but Israel keeps shifting the facts on the ground uh, by expanding these settlements. I mean, the West Bank was supposed yeah. to be for Palestinians. Now there's 700. I mean, Israel keeps allowing these illegal settlements, but the Israeli government doesn't do anything about it. Um, so it, it, Israel is an active participant, I think, in causing its own trouble. Uh, the way they treat Palestinians uh, is inviting uh, dissent and dissatisfaction. So I, mean, I, I think the Palestinians have a, a legitimate case. They have not been treated well by the Israelis over a very long period of time. And I don't think we should expect them to um, not be discontented and in some cases uh, react very violently. I want to go back to something Tom said, that the United, that the United States sort of just reflexively supports whatever Israel does. Whatever they claim they're saying behind closed doors to try to stop Netanyahu, that's certainly not having any effect. He seems to be able to do whatever he wants, mm -hmm. and the United States supports him. And as long as that continues, why should Israel not use the fact that it has technological military superiority? Because um, they, are, they are, just as the looks of it, this is a war against Palestinian people. They're killing children. They're killing women. Uh, they're destroying the hospital system. Um, they are going, you know, they're going to herd the Palestinians into smaller and smaller area. And it's only going to make the situation worse. And the United States is abetting it. You know, you, you read the Irish newspapers, I read the Irish newspapers and some of the British newspapers. And maybe Charles can, you know, chime in on this being in Europe. I don't get the sense that the rest of the world is as supportive at least of the Israeli government, its policy. I think we need to separate the idea of Israel as a, whether it's a legitimate nation or not. That's one question. The policies of the Netanyahu government 
are another question. And I don't see how any human, human person can, can support uh, what the Israelis are doing in, in, in Gaza right now. Well, let's, well, as, as Claudine Day might say, let, let's talk about context. And there's two issues there. There's the, the settlement issue where I tend to agree. I mean, that's, I don't see where that's going. That just seems like that's a, a dead end. The conduct of the war is a little bit different. And I'm probably going to say everything, things that people know. There was a ceasefire on October 6th. Um, I'm willing to send a New York, a New York Times account of the nature of the violence on October 7th, include, including horrific, horrific sexual violence. I mean, this stuff, this is not bad or violent. This is barbaric. This is disgusting. Disgusting what was done. It was done by Hamas, and not in one or two cases. Apparently, whether it was planned or not, who was spontaneous, who knows. This was an attack on Israel that exceeded the, Pearl, the attack on Pearl Harbor by Japan exceeded, in proportional terms, the attack on 9-11. When a country gets attacked like that, they fight back. We fought back, we killed a lot of Japanese civilians. We bombed Hiroshima, the Japan didn't surrender, and we bombed Nagasaki. It wasn't like, we're going to, oh, they killed 2,500 sailors, we're going to kill 2,500 Japanese. That's not how it works. When a country gets attacked, they destroy, like that, they destroyed the attacker. We wanted to destroy the Japanese military. We wanted to destroy Al-Qaeda. And Israel wants to destroy Hamas, and, and rightly so. And they're going to do what it takes. There's a lot of collateral damage. I'm sure they're probably overdoing it. But it, they didn't wake up one morning and say, let's go kill some women and children in Gaza. You know, that wasn't the way of it. Thousands of, of them were slaughtered in a, in a country that size. Yes, they're, they're going to react violently. And if you didn't want that, and Hamas, and this is at the feet of Hamas, they knew this was coming. Did they think Israel was not going to retaliate? I, I mean, that's not how the world works. The retaliation is completely disproportionate, though, and it's out of hand. Was it disproportionate to bomb Hiroshima? Only 2,500? Well, I, don't, I don't think that was a particularly brilliant idea, frankly. Well, yeah. <laughs> but and it yeah. ended World War II uh, with the Japanese. And, 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 I'm, and I'm, I, was, I was wondering if one of you were going to go in that same direction. If in the end, when we, look, when we look forward six months from now, or whenever, and suddenly there is no more Hamas organization basically doing oh. what... I don't know, but by Israeli standards, and maybe by many in the Middle East also, doing things that are very, very non-peace-oriented, will people quietly, without really saying it, you know, up front, kind of say, well, you know, I know it was horrible and what they did was the worst stuff in the world, and we could all agree on that, but damn it, they're not there anymore. What would be in its place what you would think change? Palestinians? What would change? I'm something something still has to start. Something has to be done first. I think we've spent the first half of the show here pretty much agreeing on what's not working and largely <laughs> what can't be done. But something, and Charles began it with his statement, said there's at least there's a group sitting not too far from where he is right now, talking about at least getting some humanitarian aid and getting some regular medical supplies. That's the only doing step 
I'm hearing so far from us. Gentlemen, we're going to have to do better <laughs> because that's what the premise of this entire forum is. And if we can't solve it, and we're not, the point was to at least lay out the general steps that would have to be taken now or at some point in the future to move towards peace. I think there's still a chance we can do something with that notion before our time is up, but we're going to do it after a little jazz.
You're listening to a special Noble Hearts Forum here on Center Left Radio, the progressive voice of hope, politics, and jazz. The, before we went to, before we went to break, the the idea that was uh, that was tossed out. We, we were hearing some some interesting history, and uh, when we when we started this forum, I, I was saying that there had to be a certain recitation of history. Hopefully, a little less emotion charge. But I've come to the conclusion that there is no emotionless or or relatively. Uh, simple way of stating the history as it applies to the present. So maybe we, we try another tact. Uh, as, as, uh, as we were saying before break, Charles, Charles was talking about a group of people near where he is right now in the Middle East who are essentially at least trying to put out medical supplies. They're at least trying to do something. What is the minimum to-do list even if we can't establish an absolute framework for peace, what's the, t- the, what's the intermediary, the intermediate to-do list that we must assemble and that people must do something about to begin the process of maybe moving towards peace? I've never used that many subjunctives in a sentence in my well, life. What can we do? It seems to me that one of the first things that has to happen is both sides have to recognize that there is no military solution. The Israelis are not going to kill enough people. They're going to create a future generation of people with serious grievances who will seek revenge. Palestinians, Hamas, are not going to defeat the Israelis militarily. Neither side can win. And, and, and so once they recognize that, then you can maybe begin, so what do we do now? But as long as they keep, yes, in October, what happened on October 7th was, was, was you know, beyond the pale. No, no, I don't think anyone would defend that. It was horrific. But the response yeah. has, is not solving the problem. The response is simply expanding the problem. So I think the first thing, and that's one of the things that happened in Northern Ireland uh, with the Women's Movement for Peace, so women on both sides coming together saying no more, you know, this has to stop. And the, the and that, that began a process of, of reigning in, you know, reigning in the, the so-called hard men on both sides. Can you imagine an equivalent situation under even the most optimistic of situations? Can you imagine something like that happening between the Gazans and the Israel, well, you know, the Palestinians and the Israelis, starting with exactly where we are today, the 14th of January, 2024. Is there a point to go forward from today? Where from today's situation do we draw the inspiration, the possibilities, the functionalities that we can put in place to move in that direction? Anyone? It's called mediation and negotiation. And tomorrow here in Doha, I'm meeting the chief Bahrainian representative to the United Nations, who's a former student of mine. And through him, I hope to make, which is a major reason I'm here in Doha, connections with the diplomats in the Qatar government and other Arab uh, states who want to move small step by small step to 
a ceasefire, a withdrawal of Israeli forces, an internationally supervised truce, and serious negotiations between a different Israeli administration and quite possibly a different Palestinian administration in the West Bank. I can tell you I'm in the Middle East. I watch television programs from 10 different countries, except for the American and the BBC to much lesser degree, all the other programs from all over the world, and I do watch Russian TV too, agree the problem is the occupation. There is no dispute about that anywhere except in the Anglophonic world and possibly in Germany as well. You end the occupation by whatever means peacefully is necessary, and then you can have serious negotiations and deliberation over a one-state solution with an expanded Israel incorporating the West Bank as full-fledged equal citizens without an apartheid system, which is what the Israeli left thinks is now the more viable alternative to a two-state solution, which has been undermined by the Israeli right. But it has to be step-by-step, small step negotiated through intermediaries between Hamas as a subset of the Palestinian world, which it is, and is not going away politically. It may go away for a short time militarily. But the ideology of Hamas is widely shared, not just in Gaza, but also in the West Bank and throughout most of the Arab world, which is where I'm sitting right now. That cannot be defeated. That can only be negotiated with step by step. Tom's earlier comments, Tom, your earlier comments would suggest to me that your notion of how the idea of ongoing military activity would be best, and and, and that being unsustainable for anyone and cannot lead to a solution, we have to stop the military activity. You suggested in your comments, to me at least I got this, that the United States plays a major role in that and that the Biden administration is absolutely, for whatever reason, not willing to, to withdraw enough of that unconditional support to Israel. Why is that so, and what do you think it might take to basically get the United States to back off? If that is, well, again, I'm going with your comment on that, and I'm sure John might have a different thought, but I want to hear your thoughts on that first. Uh, Why is that? Um, You know, it's historical. Uh, Biden, you know, the current president is extremely traditional on these matters. He would, I mean, there's certain things he just, you know, he's blinders on. I could go on the list that's not relevant to this. He's just a man in certain ways of uh, another time uh, in foreign policy. Um, you know, it's a big... The, there's a, a feeling in the U.S. Uh, government and, and American society that uh, a debt is owed to the Jewish people and that debt is paid by the state of Israel. And don't bother me with the facts of who was there before, whether there are any people there and and whatever. That is all, those facts are subservient to making up for the Holocaust. I mean, that that is, uh, you know, the the basic history. I I don't think it's any 
any more complicated than that. Uh, as you know, as noted, I mean, to your alarm earlier, uh, there are uh, people 50 years younger who look at it very different. They look at what they see now, um, and they don't want to be bothered with other things. Parenthetically, on the first one, a Jewish friend of mine said once, they should have given the Jews Germany. Um, and, of course, everyone would have understood, right? But they gave them another land where... You know, there was historical uh, relationship, yeah. but there was a population, and that is the never-ending grievance of the Palestinians. I agree, I, mean, I think I agree with John, that, you know, in a certain sense, so what? You do have to deal with what is in front of you. Now, of course, uh, the idea that a part of your would ever have been given to the Jews is preposterous, right? But it would have been justice at any rate. Um, not to be. Uh, any way uh, of changing this? I don't see anything in the near future. There is a, a consensus between the centers of the Democratic and the Republican parties on this. There are people off in one direction in the... Uh, uh, and the Democratic Party in terms of congressional representation yeah. and to a smaller extent in the other degree in the, in the Republican Party. But it's it's overwhelming. There are, what, 38 states that have passed laws against boycott, divestment, and sanctions? Um, you know, you're not even... Uh, in Israel, you're not allowed to advocate for it, right? Um, it's, it, you know, it's an extremely uh, tough road to hoe. Um, I don't, uh, I don't see any alternative, however, but to try and change Congress and to try and force the Israeli state from the outside to bend to the question of, I, uh, as Charles said, I think probably a single state solution is, is, is inevitable. And boy, you know, the, the, uh, the, the government of Israel at this point wants no part of it. And my sense is for understandable reasons, um, much of uh, the Israeli population has moved in, in that direction. One, one last thought. Um, the fact that um, governments have, in the past, reacted by obliterating civilian populations is not equal to a justification for it. Part of what came out of World War II was some sense of a rule of international law in war. Now, it's largely a fantasy, but it's the right idea, and it's something that we are obligated to attempt to pursue. John, a John answer a slightly different question. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tw I know where you would go with it. I, the question I would have asked you based on what Tom was saying was, okay, should we convince Biden to do something else? And it's a possibility he could. Is there, let me try this a different way. Is there an ongoing or is there a growing problem for the United States if things continue as they are going right now? Does the current situation affect our security? Does it affect our economic security? Does it affect our military, secu our military security? What, what is the downside or is there a downside to just supporting Israel openly, as the Biden administration appears to be doing right now. Yeah, 
I don't, as asked in the realistic way you asked it, I, I would say not much of a downside. Uh, remember, a little again, the context is we were talking rightly about the Palestinians, not about the larger Arab world. I, I've read articles, and who knows? You know, who knows? But you read articles, and some people say when talking to other Arab leaders, head of Saudi Arabia, you read of the Palestinians, they roll their eyes like, okay, yeah, we have to support them. There are federal Arabs, but boy, are these people a pain in the ass. Uh, Israel probably would have signed a peace treaty with Saudi Arabia by now, if it hadn't been for the Gaza war. They were, they were moving that way. There were the Abraham Accords. The larger Arab world, I don't think, is, is as radical. So I don't see, in real politic terms, I don't see much downside for the United States. We're getting, you know, we're alienating the Palestinians. They, they don't like America. They never have. I don't think they ever will for, for a long time. So, no, I don't think there's much of a realistic you know, at, at that level, a reason not to support Israel. I think it's more a question of internal politics. And, you know, as Tom says, you know, rightly or wrongly, I would say more rightly than wrongly, both parties are are pretty much in the pro-Israel camp now. I mean, obviously, the progressive wing of the Democrats, they're, you know, they're in a, playing a different ballgame. Yeah. They have no powers yet. I mean, that, that could change. I mean, demographics change and political parties change position. Um, but... Uh, but right now, I think I think the Americans are pretty solidly behind Israel, and and there's I, I don't see much that, that's going to change that in the next five or ten years. Well, I think demo- the demography is going to change that. I think, as Tom pointed out, okay. the young younger Americans don't see Israel the same way our generation does. Part yeah. of the reason why the government is so pro-Israeli is the government is a bunch of old geezers like them. <laughs> yeah, everyone's 90 years old. <laughs> Who have a sort of post-World War II worldview. Yeah. Well, the, the, the younger generations uh, that are coming up, uh, they're not going to have that same cultural baggage worldview. They're going to look at what's, I think Tom pointed this out, they're going to look at what's going on the ground and they're going to see Israel, Israel as, you know, just, over-responding. Yes, October 7th was awful, but we're talking about tens of thousands of children being killed. We're talking about, you know, starving, denying denying people food and medicine, destroying hospitals. Um, you know, you, you, you know the, the younger generation looking at that is not going to say, well, they were attacked after all on October 7th, and that was really nasty. They're going to look at Israel as, a, as the bully of the Middle East. And... Yeah, I, I- I think and and in, addition, in addition to all that, seated now as I am in the Middle East, mm-hmm. I can tell you there, there is an expectation that this is going to expand out of control. It's already involved the Houthis, which is already involving Iran. The United States, in addition to bombing Yemen, which is not far from where I'm seated, is also bombing Iraq and Syria for the ostensible reason of um, alleged Iranian-backed proxies attacking Americans there. This is dramatically expanding throughout the Middle East because of the dynamic of American and radical Islamist hatred of each other with the potential to spiral out of control. That's yet another reason to rein in 
the Anglo-American response on the one hand, and to take seriously our mediation and negotiation efforts, which, which are present not only in Khato, which is where I am, but also throughout much of the Middle East. I watch Egyptian and Turkish uh, television and listen to their commentaries as well. And they all are terrified of the expansionist possibilities of this to inflame not just the Red Sea, but where I'm seated, I can see it, the Persian Gulf as well. There has to be a drawback, not an expansion of American-British efforts to rein in the Houthis, which is how they're pronounced here, uh, and other so-called Iranian proxies, or there will be a direct confrontation between either or both Israel and the United States on the one hand and Iran on the other. Well, well, again, there, everyone seems to be troubled by the response of the West. I mean, again, you know, the United States didn't wake up one morning and say, let's bomb Yemen because we need target practice. Uh, as you well know, if shipping was being attacked in the Red Sea. That's piracy. It's, it's, it's outlawed by international law. And so we responded, maybe maybe not strongly enough. Uh, we, you know, who's widening the war? Israel didn't wake up one morning and, and attack Gaza, which was, by the way, was not occupied. Just to sort of, you know, repeat that. Um, it's all it's blockaded. It's, all which is the, it's blockaded, which is even worse. I wonder why it's blockaded. Uh, is Israel controlled? Why would Israel need to defend itself against Gaza? You know. Uh, why do they build a wall? Uh, you know, again, they will, you know, when you get enough bus stations and pizza parlors bombed, then then you you build walls. <laughs> you know, again, they, it, it's reasonable for. I don't want to. Maybe I shouldn't say us in the West because maybe you don't feel like that part of it. We have to be responsible in how we respond. But in general, Israel and the United States. We don't want war. Why do we want war? We're prosperous. To leave us alone. We want to make money and, and watch TV. And and we get attacked. You know, the Houthis start, you know, bombing or not bombing, taking over ships. Gazans decide it's a great idea to invade Israel paragliders and, and, and we respond. Yes, we have to be responsible in how we respond. But the, the relentless focus on, gee, I hope we're not overdoing it. Well, okay, that's fine. Maybe that's what we can control. But the problem started not, not with us. I mean, what, what's the alternative? Not to bomb Yemen? Let, let close down the Red Sea for shipping? Because The alternative is to talk to your enemies through third parties. Which is what happened in Northern Ireland and has happened in many other countries to bring people to the negotiating table through intermediaries. Okay. Is that beginning to happen right now, down the block, so to speak, from where you are, you think, Charles? Could you actually uh, go that direction? I could better answer that question tomorrow after I meet a diplomat. Well, I don't think this is the last show we're going to be doing. This is not the last forum on this. I'll, I'll be honest, because I, I thought we might go... A, little further than where we are but uh to quote everybody <laughs> the facts on the ground are 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 militating against getting 
much further than a historical and uh, just about a full current statement of what's there. But even then, among ourselves, I'm hearing it that you know we're we're all being polite and we're all being you know we know each other and we we respect each other. But there are different takes on the same set of facts, and if we're doing that among ourselves, <laughs> you know, <laughs> damn. Uh, Welcome to politics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There is I, a danger. Tom, you're going to say something. Tom. Yeah, the idea that John put out there that Israel just, you know, why are people bothering them? They don't want war. Uh, 700, you know, they, the Palestinians have 22% uh, of the territory of the, uh, of the, the original Palestine. Yeah. 700,000 settlers have moved into the bigger part. Gaza requires 500 trucks a day of food shipments to exist normally. Oh, and why should these people be unhappy? Yes, was the uh, the Hamas attack uh, un, uh, indefensible? Absolutely. Someone had a uh, a poster at uh, one of the hearings on the resolution. You know, rape is not resistance. Absolutely. Did they did they sully their cause? But but who expected anything different from ha- Hamas? They're a pariah organization, as Israel should be a pariah government at this point because of what they're doing with civilian population. The idea that they're just sitting here and you know the the Palestinians have no problem is absurd. All right, we're not we're not going to solve the problem today, but. I think, and again, this is an undercurrent that I've picked up throughout this entire thing. I, 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 it's not for the sake of just ending this on a positive note, although it might have that unintended effect. Who knows? We would all agree, or maybe we all agree. Let's, let's see. Let's poll ourselves. We all agree that a better state of affairs would be if... Gaza and the entire Palestinian state and all the Palestinian people had better guaranteed rights in either a one-state or a two-state solution. It can't keep going. The war can't keep going the way it's going. Israeli war activities must be backed off. There must be respect given to the Palestinian people. There must be a rational governance process within the Palestinian areas, territories, state, whatever it evolves into. But nothing seems to be doable at this moment in time. Nothing. There are no specific steps other than Charles saying that there's the beginnings, the beginnings of negotiations down the block that could somehow get there. I'm hearing the early stages of the Northern Ireland uh, gradual process, the tiptoeing towards peace, if you want to continue using the Northern Ireland analogy. And I'm seeing Years? I mean, would you guys agree? We're talking years for this thing to somehow resolve itself. And I'm wondering and I'm hoping that that the United States somehow is a an appropriate moral and uh, militaristic and uh, and physical and, and aid giving and whatever we're doing to the right people and that we are a positive element in all this. But there ain't nothing happening soon. Well, it's going to take time for sure. And I think yeah. Northern Ireland situation, one of the catalysts was outside of government. 
particularly women, organized basically to demand an end to the insanity. Can you see course, any? Can you see any equivalent that, that, that among? I think you know. I think the Israeli people are going to have to get rid of Netanyahu. Not unelect Netanyahu. Well, everything I've heard from Israeli friends tells me that's they, about to happen. Need, it's going to happen Israel, very Israel needs to elect yeah. a government that has policies that are moving towards solution rather than maintaining superiority. Yeah, yeah. And I think the Palestinians need a comparable shift. I mean. You know, they need to reject Hamas and elect leaders who are committed to improving their situation through negotiation, through discussion, and uh, demand. You know, so you can, I mean, Northern Ireland is not perfect. The, 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 um, the government there is very, is highly dysfunctional. It's regular, I'm not even sure if it's in power or under suspension right now. Uh, they, they go back and forth being in charge and being suspended because they can't get along. But at least, you know, the violence has been brought to a close. The, you know, it's a rel it's, Belfast is now a very safe place. I can remember when I was there and a, a friend who's lived in Belfast was taking me on a tour and the, mur the, the murals on the bed gables and we were at this one neighborhood she said now bill if anyone starts to speak to us you talk i can't open my mouth in this neighborhood <laughs> and i said pauline why don't we just get in the car <laughs> and she said i have a southern catholic accent this is a protestant there yeah, 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 yeah. damn and she said if i open my mouth you know um, I, but those those days, I think, are are behind them. But it took, you know, it's 25 years since the Good Friday Agreement. That took years to affect, and there's still segregation. You know, the the the, yeah. the state schools are are run largely by church groups. There's this mm. entire, there's a you know there's the Catholic schools, there's the Protestant schools. I had a friend who was the headmaster of a mixed religious school that went out of business. <laughs> Couldn't get enough students. John. So, I, I just want to chime in to largely ag agree with what Bill has said in terms of it's, you know, something devoutly to be wished that the Israelis through a democratic process would uh, elect a government that is not as hard lines, maybe more oriented towards finding a solution. And the second half of that about the Palestinians moving away from Hamas, whom they elected, you know, in 2005, a long, long time ago, I, th I can imagine the former much more easily than the latter. I mean, I can imagine Israel evolving and I can imagine dem women demonstrating and all the rest of it. Uh, and sort of asking Bill, where where is the moderate Palestinian leadership coming from? I mean, I I don't see it. I mean, I'd love to. I, I wish I wish well, I no, would, no but one, I, I, no, no know, I'm, not, I'm not seeing it. <laughs> no one saw Betty Williams, and I forget the other woman's name right now. No one saw them coming. They just had, had Yes, you know, and you know they they had had enough, and they so I mean it, it's not necessarily someone even within the political. They were just housewives. They were just regular people yeah. who finally said, "This is ridiculous." Charles, is, is, are the discussions that you're aware of uh, down the block, uh, including the the long term governance as well, or is it just Most the Palestinians are extremely disappointed? Let's put it mildly with the uh, Palestinian Authority. And 
whom they blame of corruption and incompetence, and they're yeah. probably correct. But the corruption and incompetence of the Palestinian Authority drives many people ideologically into the arms of Hamas yeah. and others because they have failed to get a Palestinian state. Failure to get a Palestinian state and to end the occupation is blamed by most Palestinians on, two, on three sources, Israel, the United States, and their own ineptitude. <laughs> Until and unless they find, and they exist, and they're on every Arab channel I watch, so-called Palestinian moderates, who say we need to end the Palestinian Authority's current administration, as well as the uh, influence of Hamas on the younger generation. And the only way that can happen is by producing results that improve the lives and security of Palestinians. Hmm. And that is not happening. There are people who think they can do that. I, I know their names. I won't bore you. Some of them are here in Doha. Many, most of them are in, the, are in the West Bank. And they are as disaffected from the Palestinian Authority and from Hamas as we are. And there is a path forward there. But again, the younger generation, just as the younger generation of Americans is much more anti the Israeli posture regarding Palestine than many people in our generation, so is the younger generation of Palestinians in particular and Arabs in general disaffected from their own governments. And they want radical change. And that was exhibited during the 2011 uh, movements that have long since been forgotten in, any, in every country except Tunisia. So there is movement for change by the younger generation and by informed Palestinian moderates, but they don't have power. Yeah. Just as there's movement for change in Israel by disaffected Israelis and by the mothers of the hostages who want negotiations to free Israeli hostages for Palestinian prisoners. To answer the other question, where are these Palestinian moderates? Many of them are in Israeli prisons and have been in Israeli prisons for decades. And the people who are being freed as exchange uh, for um, hostages are usually not the political leaders who are in Israeli prisons many of whom were charged with trumped-up charges of, of terrorism. Others are there as so-called precautionary measures by the Israeli government to, pre to prevent revolts further spreading through the, the Palestinian territories. The Palestinian potential leadership is there, but it is not in power. The Israeli potential leadership is there, but it is not yet in power. I agree with John about this that it's more likely in the short run for Israel to have a new government that changes course than it is for the Palestinians. Hmm. Tom Gallagher, last word. Last word. Well, sum um, it up, Tom. Go ahead. How often do you get this chance? Come on, man. <laughs> I'm going to a demonstration this afternoon. At okay, cool. Time. That's cool. Uh, we need to figure out what little things we can do 
uh, to pressure both uh, our government and the Israeli government. Yeah. And it probably doesn't amount to much, but it's what we got. Well, it's, it, it just sounds like, and again, uh, all right, I, I think we're ending on a slightly more positive note than I would have imagined about 10 minutes ago, <laughs> but, but it, this is a time-consuming process or something wonderful and something that none of us are recognizing as a major driver will suddenly emerge and things will go in the right direction right away. There's a lot of things out there. I, I'm, I'm taking hope from what Charles has been talking about in terms of the negotiations that are starting. I, I, I think when you, when you scratch well below the surface, below the politics, the ultimate human aspiration or our aspirations for all the humans involved, uh, no matter where we're coming from within the political spectrum, within this panel, um, pretty much match up. It's, it's having peace, it's having, having good lives, it's, it's basically not having to have your children turn into terrorists or whatever else people have to do in order to express their anger, their frustration, their, their incapacity to deal with, with the injustice and on and on. But the question is not only what the steps should be, but what steps can be taken right now. And then the extra element, as we were talking about Northern Ireland, how long might this process take? But at least we've got the aspirations right. And, uh, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I think there's obviously so much more to, to do here. I think that by discussing this, rather than grandstanding one's particular issues, uh, we move a hell of a lot further than we do uh, by, by just grandstanding. And I think we've moved the, the needle a bit here, but there's a lot further to go. And uh, hopefully uh, another uh, Noble Hearts forum or two or three on the same subject as things evolve, since, because there's going to be a lot more evolving. Uh, I want to thank my guests again today, Dr. Charles Webble. I want to thank Dr. Bill, uh, Bill Mulligan. I want, to well, I, I want to thank everybody, and I also want to thank Tom Gallagher and certainly John Cugini, and, and basically you for listening and for being um, open to hearing different opinions expressed in a non-belligerent way. Maybe that is the biggest contribution this forum can make to the process right now, that you can actually discuss this stuff without getting disgusted by the way we're doing it. Uh, thanks for being part of Center-Left Radio, and uh, I think this would be a perfect moment to digest it all with just a little more jazz.
You've been listening to a special Noble Hearts Forum brought to you by Center Left Radio, the progressive voice of hope, politics, and jazz. My name is Richard Gazer, and thanks for being part of our show. <laughs>